Let's Make It Count is a campaign to help the next generation learn about their community and world through data. I'm very excited to introduce our guest today, Lily Gongas. Lily, welcome to the show. Hello, hello. Super excited to be here as well. Now, you and I go way back. We're going to get into that in a little bit. You are a census enthusiast just like me. And I want to start with your journey. So as a proud immigrant from Bolivia who has really dedicated your entire career to fostering inclusive tech ecosystems, it's such a cool area and it's so important the work that you do. But I'd like to understand how did you find that passion and just give us kind of the background on your journey and how you got to where you are today. Sure, definitely. I think my my story is a story of an immigrant. Hopefully for the folks who are listening, they can resonate with this as well. I immigrated from Bolivia when I was six years old with my mom and my sister. My mom is really the, has been my hero, shiro role model because till this day, I have no idea how she was able to raise two daughters as a single parent in a country where that it was the first time she had been here with very little resources. But what she did instill in my sister and I was making sure that we prioritize our education and to remember that all her hard work has to be for a purpose and for a reason. And so, she was a uh, very, very tough growing up, very dedicated to her schoolwork, despite having to work two to three jobs. And I think really early on, I saw that dedication. And in my end, I wanted to make her proud. And so I think when, when I first started going to school here, because I didn't know English, I was learning it, but I did know math. And so math became my universal language. And I was able to gravitate towards the puzzles and the math problems so much that my second grade teacher was like, She's really good at this stuff. And then I took a few tests. And before I knew it, apparently I was on this fast track for math. And I would give kudos to the Bolivian education because we were actually ahead back then in elementary than some of the students were here in in the U.S., which is actually surprising. But as I got to get older, I learned some of the reasons why. And I would say public education, free public education in Bolivia is actually, I would even say that it's better than the U.S. for a lot of different reasons. But we can go into that a little bit later. It was that path of being able to some somehow have somebody that saw a potential in me to help route my interest towards things that I liked and started to do well. And fast forward, was able to go to USC undergrad for electrical engineering. And then I got my first job as an engineer. And and, and I would say that te- a career in technology changed my life. I'm one of those stories where the upper economic mobility that having a career in in one of the higher paying jobs really transformed my life and my family's life. And my first job as a software engineer with not much experience, I was making two to three times what my mom was earning two to three jobs. And what I didn't realize then, but now as I realized, you know, after doing different career pivots through management consulting, and then eventually, and then the field that I'm in, I got an opportunity to take a look into what the future entailed. And so to work at, at at Accenture, at Booz, and even some start local startups, I get a peek into what our artificial intelligence was, virtual reality, future of IT, robotics, etc. It was really clear that it was being shaped by people that didn't look like me, without folks that that were of diverse backgrounds. Uh, just being a, a Latina immigrant, first gen, a lot of this technology was being shaped without input in the community, without really understanding our needs, despite the Latinx community being one of the largest consumers of the technology that we're building. That really led to my passion of where I'm at now, to use my own lived journey, to use what I call my nerdiness into the potential that technology can have to close gaps of access. For somebody that could have been that six-year-old Lily and that doesn't have to rely on the chance that a teacher will take time to help them fulfill their potential 
I don't want any more of our youth for their genius to be dependent on luck. I think we have the opportunity now and the tools and the data and information to really reshape the systems. So then that way, those opportunities are accessible to everybody. And therefore, we're unlocking everybody's genius, independent of where they start or what their zip code is. I can't thank you enough for sharing that. I love how you have really gone after this passion to use it in a way to lift up others and to lift up others through ecosystems and through the community. I did want to go back to your comment on the education system in Bolivia. What do you think was it about that education system that may be a bit unexpected? And why were you ahead to some degree in mathematics when you came to the States? Yeah, just touch on that a bit more if you could. Yeah, definitely. I think the focus on having more doctors, scientists, engineers was part of how Bolivia operates. Here, being an engineer was such a big deal, especially when you're a person of color, because there's just not that many of us, right? But in Bolivia, there's the way we develop the land and everything is centric on being self-sustaining. It's a landlocked country. And so we don't have access to the water. And so like a lot of those types of careers of what was, what you can do and how the economy develops, I think influenced the level and the push for education, having the opportunity to have preschool, like really early child development that was state sponsored. So. I think that there is some early stage development that I think I was able to really partake. My level when I came in, I think I started the second grade, but I think some of my math levels were the fourth grade compared to some of the tests. I think that in Bolivia as well, our teachers, we empower them. They're, they're like a teacher and a doctor. Like we respect them the same. You know what I mean? And I don't think we have the same level of, of value to some of our teachers here. And we can take a look at it by how they're paid the investment that goes into the professional development compared to a doctor, right? And so I think that there is a different set of capitalistic nature that certain careers have been monetized in others. That is so fascinating to look at these education systems across different countries and, and across different policies. Today, you lead efforts at CAPER as our chief technology and community officer. And so education is a big part of that and really lifting up and supporting this inclusive tech entrepreneurship ecosystem. And it's also fascinating how, how based in Oakland, there's this kind of microclimate of issues that are really important at the local level, but also at the state and national level. So what makes Oakland such an ideal place? And, and maybe talk a little bit about what is meant by an inclusive tech and entrepreneurship ecosystem. Help us define that. And what makes Oakland such a unique, I guess, launching pad for this as you try to balance efforts across local, state and national levels? Oakland, I think geographically, just being about seven miles away from, quote unquote, the innovation hub of the world, which is what we call Silicon Valley, you would think that there's so much potential. And yet that proximity in itself hasn't, till this day of 2020, hasn't mirrored the same level of opportunities, at least in tech jobs on this side of the bridge. I was able to get an opportunity through my work at Caper to explore and learn a little bit more on the ground of why that is. And I, I think it really boils down to the way that the cities manage. And I think being able to have clear tech strategies so that way the city is not reactive to when a tech company moves in, but actually invites and has incentives. And then therefore there's a different set of revenue structures that could be created. So then that way you're encouraging business growth, but it's also being held accountable to make sure that the rest of the residents here aren't being displaced. Oakland has a huge rate of gentrification. And if anything, I think it's created a lot of tension. Despite all this, there is this raw, what I see, the human potential, the creativity potential, and 
a lot of it has been realized. I think being here in Oakland, I'm learning about social justice and the real history of the U.S. by working directly with the community-based organizations. There's just such an immense history here of just social justice, of taking care of each other, having independent economies. This is the home of the Black Panthers and being able to see their legacies protected and preserved, but despite everything that's been happening and being able to learn that there was a lot of love and passion towards helping kids, providing the basic needs, making sure everybody was fed, that there was education, that there was healthcare. And a lot of that times, that type of narrative was in mainstream. And I think that there's a lot of gems here in Oakland besides, in addition to that, but also that there's this value in in intersectionality and being able to welcome community members that are representative a little bit of, of the world. And so everybody touts Oakland's diversity. But I would say that without very a proactive plan, that same diversity of the community is at risk. And unfortunately, tech has played a role in contributing to some of the higher costs of housing. But I would say that it's been more than tech. I think in general, it's just been a need for much a much more explicit, inclusive economic development that it's not solely relying on who can pay the largest amounts for front front stores or who can buy. But I think having a much more balanced approach to the types of sectors that are here, there's a pretty well-balanced set of, of sectors that are represented from healthcare to some financial services, but it's largely also still very public center oriented. And so tech would be a great role for it to continue to grow here. But I think that given now in this COVID world, we have the opportunity to just rethink the Oakland economy in general, the impact that COVID is having on some of the the communities that already were already, you know, struggling. I think being able to see how we can provide services and keep some of those community members that is the reason why Oakland is diverse is important. So I think we're really at a crossroads to see what what is the the future of Oakland look like. And so all that to answer your question, this is a long winded answer to just laying the the ground that I do think that there's still a lot of unrealized potential. There's an opportunity to invite the different community members that maybe wouldn't see themselves in tech to have a path. And that's where a lot of the work that I've been doing at the Caper Center is entailed, which is what is an inclusive tech ecosystem? We are meeting the community where they're at and creating opportunities and pathways for somebody who is interested in tech to see themselves in tech. And so the Caper Center launched the Tech Leaky Pipeline Study that lays out the barriers from pre-K through 12 to post-secondary to being a tech worker to even starting your own company. And so there are very explicit barriers there. One of the parts that to me has been the most surprising and I would say the most frustrating to date is that we're in 2020, seven miles away from Silicon Valley that controls the most of the tech money, a few miles away from all these tech hubs, and yet we're still talking about digital divide. Overnight here in California, over a million students have been totally disconnected. 60% of them are students of color. Here in Oakland, the numbers were the, it was a projected that about half of them were disconnected out of the 50,000. And the majority again are students of color. And so there's a real racial equity issue here in who has the opportunity to access technology. And, and it starts with even the very basics of having connectivity. For me, the, the inclusive tech ecosystem was previously very focused on the talent development and connecting them to pathways and, and opportunities through different organizations. But now it's taking a much more fundamental look of 
what are we doing in the infrastructure side? How does policy influence and how can we look at a rethinking the way we approach our some of just the bare bone basics of a city infrastructure to make sure that if we really want to create these opportunities for everybody, we need to take stock of some of the glaring basic infrastructures and broadband access, high-speed broadband access is now a public good. And so we need to really refocus on that area. You know, you touched on a number of issues that are so important to to communities, not not just Oakland, but across this country and across the world. You touched on issues like social justice, gentrification, digital divide, pathways. And this brings us to the census. You know, we're still, as, as we're recording this podcast, about 30 days out to be counted in the 2020 census. And as our former boss, Avi Bender, used to, you know, describe, the census is such an important foundational layer to how we look at, you know, our country and, and how we look at, you know, really important issues. It's, it's almost like this base layer that you can apply against a policy or uh, against a movement and just understand our people and economy through the, through the lens of the census data. In your eyes, why is the census so important and, and what's at stake with the 2020 census? It's really our representation, our, our voice. I would say that given the, the times that we're in this double pandemic, the, the largest social movement of our time and the fight for democracy, literally the census is the price. And that's one of the things ever since I worked with you all, I really was able to appreciate the level of detail and why this data is so important. As we know that it really every year allocates more than 600 plus billion dollars of federal money to different states. And if you're not counted and, and your voice is not part of it, then you're not getting the resources. And so to, to kind of connect it back right to the story I shared of Bolivia, where why my school in Bolivia was able to provide me different opportunities that when I came to the U.S., I was quote unquote in accelerator mode is probably because the school that I was going to in LA, LAUSD was not properly funded. There's a lot of these resources also impact all of our state services in addition to even setting up the the federal and the national stock market prices, right? It just it just impacts so much. And I think that the census is so crucial, especially for right now in the communities of color. And if I could even go one more step, one more layer for the Latinx community. For me, I just seen the the anticipated numbers of how the US is going to be mostly black and Latinx, right? That's supposed to be the the new minority majority. But yet there are specifically Latinx are still very hard to count. And I think that a lot of the times when we take a look at across the U.S., there's a lot of reasons that we have a large immigrant population. We also have some some issues with especially this year, I think, with what's been happening with the fear of for some of the undocumented families of even filling out right there, the census. There's a lot of fear in being counted. There was a lot of distrust that unfortunately was created. And this can have dire consequences for a state like in California, where we have a large population of undocumented communities. But those are kids that are going to school. Those are parents that are working and helping the economy. And they're all paying taxes in general. And so it's a really critical and I would say the most important one because it has a generational impact. If we don't get the numbers correct this year, at least get an approximate, then we can't really allocate the resources to help those areas that needed the most to be able to to get the resources at, across all their social services, including schools. We're not also able to make sure that we have the right representation at all levels, whether it's at your city, state, or federal. 
And then ultimately, it's also something that can't be undone for a whole next decade. To me, the census is so important that I even took us one step further in my civic engagement, Jeff. And this is going to be news because it's, it's also going to, it just got confirmed. But I'm also part of Oakland's first ever redistricting commission. Wow, congratulations. Thank you. Now I'm Commissioner Genghis. Now I'm going to be on the ground to really make sure that the data that is being collected, we're relying it a lot on the census. And so redistricting, even at that level, to make sure that we are having a inclusion lens, both from economic, racial, ethnic, just lived journeys, I think will be important to make sure that people's voice are being counted, making sure that we're doing our best job to make sure that it's reflective for the next generation. And so I, I all that to say that I think the census has multi-generational impact and we have to get it right. And out of any year that needs to be to get as right as possible is this year, because this is there's been a lot of demographic changes that I don't think the past census is actually even reflective, in my opinion. I think we're still undercounting certain groups. Um, and there's an opportunity to even open up the the way people can identify so then that we have a better understanding of the ethnic makeup of, of this country. That was an incredible summary of, of why the census is so important. I'm just thrilled that you're uh, taking that next step at the local level. And I think it speaks to how, how folks can get involved in their local communities through public service and through the civic engagement process. And I think it's a great lesson for all of us to just look in our own communities. There's so much has been said at the national level and certainly federal and state and offices are held in high regard, but there's so much we can do at the local level. And, and that's really where the rubber meets the road and where communities uh, can be lifted up. So that's incredible that you're doing that. And it's a great segue to some of the exciting efforts that that CAPER is leading. I mean, this fall is just so pivotal. We have the 2020 census, we have the upcoming election, and CAPER has launched what's called the 100 Days of Action campaign, which includes issues and work towards educational inequities, advancing economic justice, and promoting civic engagement. So I was hoping you could give us a quick overview of, of what is the 100 Days of Action and what are you most excited about and, and maybe what part of that portfolio are you most involved with? Yes, 100 Days of Action of Racial Justice. That is what we at the Caper Center across Smash, the foundation and Caper Capital, we are all mobilizing towards making sure that it's not just uh, getting out the vote. It doesn't, the work that we're, that we're doing, given the times that we're in, our why in Arthur has not changed. If anything, we're trying to amplify with more urgency what we need to be doing and inviting everybody that maybe may not be aware of what we do, but to help us to join us and be part of, of, calling out uh, the need for change, for systemic change, specifically ensuring that there is a racial component to this. I think one of the the aspects that it, the silver lining of the times that we're in, I hope that more people are having this discussion in rooms that maybe before they thought they couldn't, or maybe they didn't think that that it was appropriate, right? And if if anything, I think now we are all seeing some of the systemic issues and the sometimes for where it affects people in different ways. And today is like the March in Washington. And when we think about it, how we progressed since the time of Dr. King to where we're at now, I think that's a good time to reflect. And so the 100 Days of Action for, for Racial Justice for the Caper Center is really focused on three key areas, educational equity, civic engagement, and economic justice. And the educational equity, we are focusing on 
making sure that we're closing the digital divide, that we are ensuring that people are aware of some of the ballot issues, right? There's a lot of issues on the state level that are actually tackling some of these racial discussions, specifically in California, that's Prop 15 and Prop 16, for folks to learn more about and like how it could impact education. Prop 15, for example, has the opportunity to look at $12 billion per year towards schools. And so when we take a look at our educational sources of revenue, I think this creates an opportunity. There's a lot of pros and cons and discussions that people are having, and we just want to bring awareness to that. In addition, we have a SMASH, which is the three-year program that has just been making sure that students are not only entering and pursuing STEM degrees, but they're also completing it. And it's because when they're in high school, they have SMASH, which encourages them to gain the key skills that they need. They have the right mentors and it and it really sets them up for success. So we're really amplifying that, as well as the importance for bringing awareness towards computer science. And so there's a whole set of that in an educational equity and the civic engagement, which is where I'm also more more heavily involved. I mean, both in the educational equity and the digital divide and then the civic engagement, that's the part where I've been all all in. And so we recently announced that we are created a VTO, a volunteer day off on election day. We want to make sure we want to encourage other organizations, other employers to make sure that they're to create this opportunity for the employees to get engaged, but really created by helping them have a day off so they can not only go vote, but volunteer. We know that there is a huge need for poll workers, especially during this COVID time. This is an opportunity for some of the younger community members to join. And so I would encourage whoever's listening to, to do that, encourage other organizations to take that pledge. We're also going to be doing more get out the vote events with partners. And so stay tuned for that. There's going to be more on, on coming. But it's really about raising awareness of what you can do and what's at stake in this election. And granted, we're a foundation, so we, we have to stay bipartisan. And so it's really about creating awareness to what folks can do and individual folks. And on the economic justice, I think that there's going to be more work coming soon on this end, but it's really creating calls to action for investors, for entrepreneurs for employee resource groups, specifically in the tech sector, and how, how can we create play, share more information about some of the gaps that we need to be closing. And so there's there's a good set of amount, and all of this is all in progress. We know that we didn't want to do it just for election. We wanted to make sure that we were focused on the remainder of the year. 2020 has been an intense year. I hope that it's a year of transformation. There's been a lot of pain. There's been a lot of loss of life. And so... If this is not the time for all of us to really rethink the systems and fight for a better future that's inclusive of, of all, especially the ones that have been marginalized for so long, when will it be? That's amazing. It really has been a tough year. And what gives me optimism is just seeing what folks like Caper and your leadership and your organization's leadership are doing. And I do believe we can create some of these moonshot moments through through this period of, of just challenging times that we're we're living in. So transitioning to the final part of this interview, I wanted to get your take on some really interesting data use cases or data prompts that students are that are considering the national challenge may want to look into. So if you were to participate or to mentor a student in this challenge, can you think of a, a problem that you'd want to tackle with census data? I mean, and there's been so much data specifically estimating the who is connected and who's not connected by the code because we've been looking at that, right? But what's missing is this cent- the central database of how are we actually doing on closing 
that digital divide and whether it's having it from a lens that a parent can understand. Right now, we have so many parents that are playing the role of caretaker for their kids, as well as teachers, as well as doing their job, right? And then the ones that aren't able to help their student, their their kids get connected online. And they're wondering, like, when is my kid going to be able to go back to school in some format, right? We don't know the the sense of the progress. I think it would be great to see if there's a way to use the census data in a way that can also just show where is the most urgent need based on income, based on racial, based on other sets of data that it maybe could be on the economic level as well, maybe some infrastructure. When was the last time you know that a round of money has gone into a city's infrastructure, for example? So there, there's a few. I think I'm just thinking top of mind of what are some data sets and problems that I'm seeing is better understanding the need for getting not only the students connected online and learning, but actually knowing that they're learning. And right now, parents and teachers need help. And I'll just give an example, right? Like I, I just started teaching at uh, Mills as a adjunct lecturer, and I had my first class in Zoom. And I will tell you, it has been one of the most humbling experiences because it was super challenging and harder than I anticipated. I mean, granted, these are grad school students. And I was still struggling. And so my heart goes out to all these teachers who are working with elementary and high school students to just even rethinking how they are approaching their everyday lessons. And is this an opportunity for us to maybe rethink and think out of the box how we should be teaching? Maybe we should be doing more project oriented where the students can do more hands-on and not necessarily be in front of a screen. And so this is why I think that the census could come in. This could be an opportunity for students to take a look at some of the data sets and, and be part of Let's Make It Count. Maybe there's a way that teachers uh, at different levels can engage their students to help them get exposed and get them more excited about data in itself and help them solve the problems that they're seeing in their community. Because I know that there's an open data set. Maybe some of the other the students who are a little bit further on in their careers can build solutions to problems that they're seeing in their community. And so I would be excited to see what could be done on that front end to just augment the experience in learning right now. And I think this Make It Count could be a great addition to the current uh, learning environment. And so if there's any teachers out there listening to this, check out let's makeaccount.org. Bring, bring this to your classroom, see if this could be a way for students to participate and give them credit for it. I think this is, I think, the more... The, the time to rethink and think out of the box of how we approach our, our learning. And, and I would say for the folks who are also not familiar with some of the census data, there is just so much there. You don't, if, especially if there's any entrepreneurs that are listening, there's all the market research data you want to do. The census at some point is covering it. And so I think just being able to take a look at trends of population, industries and businesses are just so much. I, I love the suggestions. We'll definitely put a data prompt on the website that talks about the digital divide. And we will share some potential data sets that students can explore, not just census data, but from other other federal agencies. They're all a public good that we have access to. So thank you so much, Lily. You've been very gracious with your time. Thanks for sharing your story. Thanks for the work that you do at, at Caper. It's quite the inspiration. Let's all go out there and let's make it count this year. Thanks again.